Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Tim Burrows, author of Media Unmade and founder of Mumbrella, is a one-off. His commentary on the media world is uniquely insightful and has been essential reading in industry circles for over a decade. In this conversation, he covers, amongst other things, his face blindness condition, thoughts on Rupert Murdoch and his love of Southampton Football Club. So, Tim, welcome to Five of My Life. Nigel, an absolute pleasure. And it's been a while since we've spoken, so it's nice to renew acquaintances as well. Absolutely. And have you listened, don't worry if you haven't, have you listened to any Five of My Life episodes? I have, yes. No, it's 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 nice to see as a, as a British person, it's nice, nice to see a tiny bit of the DNA of Desert Island Discs in there. I, I, I am honoured and thrilled that you would use that as a comparison. Desert Island Discs, who are my spirit animal, Desert Island Discs, which I adore, goes chronologically through a person's life. Whereas at Five of My Life, we are deliberately random. I mean, obviously, it's not all records. It's just one record. But we're deliberately random. I, I, I love the fact that I, I obviously I know my guests' choices and I research them, but I don't know the stories behind them. And so you could have stories that are only from the last three years of your life and that's completely fine by me or just from your childhood i'm not supposed to be doing a comprehensive chronological fascinating though it would be (laughs) you know expose on mr burrows i'm a passionate fan of the format i'm just going to listen to you explaining why you chose your five things and we start with the film and you have chosen we're going back to the 80s you've chosen what many people consider to be the best of the star wars films it's the second one bit of a tonal shift a bit darker it's got the greatest plot twist in cinema history um the empire strikes back uh, tell us about that tim look i suppose so much when you look back at when you have to pick a favorite movie and i i think whenever somebody asks me i I choose something else a lot of the time, but broadly you're probably picking from the same ten. It's about a time and a place, isn't yes. it? And of course, you know, I was I was born in 1970, so I was very much the right age for that movie coming out. And I suppose when I think about the sort of early years of going to the movies for the first time, that's the film I think about. You know, I remember being taken to, you know, grew up in Hampshire in the UK to to a, a cinema and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was down in Southampton actually and and oddly I watched the movie in a bit of an odd way in that we arrived late so um, we missed the first few minutes but then we as you were allowed to in those days stayed in the cinema when the, the movie ended and then they just started <laughs> playing it again for the next people so 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 we watched the first 15 minutes after having watched the rest of the movie which 
which I guess I, I didn't go to movies enough to even understand that wasn't necessarily how you usually did it. So You uniquely saw the first 15 minutes of that film knowing that he was his dad. That <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So it was a... And, a and, and then, of course, I suppose when you're that age, you're not, you're, you're not even really processing the impact of some of those, you know, those, those, the, the, those big stories, etc. So, um, so, yeah, you know, and I, I, I guess for me... Even now, when you see something at the cinema, it's different, particularly in these days of phones. Just having another discipline to stay off the phone for two hours is a is another good reason. But um, but for me, the test now is off. You know, even now is still, would I happily kind of stay in my seat and watch the movie again? Which um, which every now and then you get a movie, gosh, which you absolutely would. I, I think there's something uh, magical about the communal experience of sitting in a movie theatre knowing that the other people around you have also chosen to say, I am going to travel. It's like live comedy. It's like going to the Quakers' church. You, know, you can meditate in your own room or you can go sit in silence with 30 other people. It, it's just a different thing to watching it on Netflix at home. However big your TV screen is, is you know we've all gone to the Cremorne Theatre or whatever and we're sitting here together. So the gasp or the laugh is a communal one. Well, it's funny you should mention the Cremorne Theatre because, yeah, I absolutely think of that as the place to go in Sydney for that sort of experience. You know, I remember going to see the the 70mm screening of The Hateful Eight, the (laughs) Quentin Tarantino movie, and it was just incredible on the big screen. Um, Mind you, I also remember going to see the re-screening of 2001 A Space Odyssey and... Um, being desperately, desperately bored. <laughs> <laughs> Not everything stands up as you uh, as you remember as well. But but the the Cremorne Orpheum in Sydney for for moviegoers, I guess, is there's nowhere to beat it. Really, is there? Indeed not. And and you. Forgive me if I'm wrong, I've read somewhere that cinema in a way saved you when you were working in Dubai. Would you mind talking to that? Yeah. Um, I suppose one of the other things about cinema is well, two things. I, I, um, yeah, I worked in Dubai before coming to Australia, so that'll be about fifteen years ago, and um, I was very bored in Dubai. It's not a good place to be a journalist because there's not a great deal of freedom of the press, for one thing. <laughs> um, Who were you working for at the time? Well, at the time, I'd, I'd launched the Campaign Magazine, right. which was a right. well-known advertising publication, sort of out of the UK. It very shortly after I left was closed down by the by the authorities because it had flown a little too close to the sun. <laughs> um, you know everything that's said about freedom of the press. There is there isn't a, a, a great deal in Dubai. You know, so eventually I did get that we can make your life very unpleasant phone call, but. I had to sort of say to that, well, you have to hurry up because I'm leaving in a week. <laughs> um, but yeah, so going going to the movies in Dubai was definitely one of those escapes. So I do uh, on a Friday morning because it, the, the the weekend then in Dubai was a Friday, Saturday, though it has since changed to the, the more kind of Western weekend. And I would find that the only time I could really go and enjoy the cinema experience was that very first showing of the morning before anybody else was was out of bed because again you were you you in different culture and different cultural differences and it so happened that you know a, a lot of the people who live lived locally thought of the cinema as a great place to catch up with friends and chat uh, and sometimes right. in the darkness chat to friends of the opposite sex so 
you know, they you almost got the sense that sometimes people would find the film a bit of an annoying distraction for their conversation. So yeah, you had to you had to get there in the morning before uh, before anybody else was there. But yeah, that was definitely I sort of look back as a a great time for just you know just focusing on a a movie and thinking about nothing else. And you know you would you would count down to the days before you could go go along to it. Well, well we're staying in the eighties. You're stuck in an eighties time warp, man. We are. Uh... Uh, going to your book choice and you I'm, I'm so glad you chose this because i hadn't read it and i obviously ordered it and read it and it's just amazing it's a it's a classic memoir good times bad times by harold evans in 1983 um tell us about the book first of all and then why you've chosen it yeah so harold evans was one of the uk and then i suppose one of the world's most celebrated editors um probably became most prominent as editor of the Sunday Times of London in the UK. Very campaigning editor in all of the best ways. Campaigned for justice for victims of medical disasters. He he did the, the flamidamide thing. That was an amazing example of crusading journalism that actually produced good it was and it was one of those ones where the you know the victims of that didn't have a voice certainly not a powerful establishment voice until the sunday times stepped in uh unafraid as an editor would take on politicians would um you know do 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 battle against injunctions trying to stop them from publishing stories so a brave editor in 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 all of the ways that any, any journalist, which I am, would, would want to see as a role model or aspire to be even slightly like. And I I must admit, the, the, the line that most resonated when I was reading it for the first time, and I must have been a magazine editor at that point, was he just talked about that sort of act of, you, you know, they, they were a Sunday newspaper, so they were only coming out once a week, and how you always thought it was going to be perfect, and there was always some tiny flaw, and... That's almost exactly the same process that I think any editor goes through, whether it's certainly of, of something which is a printed product that can't be changed, is um, the moment it comes back, you always find something, a typo or, you know, once Mary Malou and I was editing B&T magazine in Australia, we, we in the headline on the front page, we spelt Qantas with a U, for instance. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> And then you've got to live with that for the next week. Um, so, yeah, an absolutely wonderful journalist. And I I remember feeling terribly jealous one time when I worked at Mumbrella where one of my colleagues had an idea for a feature about young journalists, up-and-coming journalists. And I suggested he try to talk to Harold Evans because I knew he was still quite available, even though he was quite elderly in New York. And... Yeah, sure enough, our journalist managed to, to get to him and interview him on the phone and sort of just sitting across the other end of the newsroom, hearing this conversation going on and not being a part of it, but being very jealous that uh, that my colleague got, got to speak to him. And, and then, of course, as you allude to, yeah, he, he passed away not that long ago. Yeah, an, an amazing man, an amazing story. And, and it's almost like that book sort of naturally, there, there's sort of two themes, the wonderful stories about running up I mean from 67 to, to 81 incredible uh, run at the Sunday Times and then the second theme is being <laughs> convinced to go across to the Times by dear old Roop, Rupert Murdoch and, and and guess what it didn't all it didn't all work out would you mind talking a little bit about that side of the book but also um, if you wouldn't mind your your personal spin on Mr Murdoch I, I guess that's where the, the title of the book good times bad times comes from that was obviously in, in Harold Evans view the the bad times um, 
you know, Rupert Murdoch, it was it was at the time where he was really becoming more interested in the UK rather than just being an Australian publisher. So as proved his way, he was extremely wily in getting hold of the the Sunday Times because of course newspapers don't don't change hands very often and they didn't change hands very often then so you have to make a lot of promises about independence and everything else and one of the patterns we've tended to see is there will be promises about independence whether it's at a board level or whether it's board of you know directors or editorial advisors or whatever it was and you know, Harold Evans was very firmly of the view that um, Rupert Murdoch didn't keep those promises of independence, which was where those fallings out came. And, and of course, you know, that's pragmatically in the real world. You get certain types of proprietor who absolutely are in it, yes, because it's a business, but also for the the power and influence that comes with owning an, a newspaper or, you know, digital publication these days, of course. And I think that was always something about Rupert Murdoch was he was he's always been an absolute genius of business, but also a genius of using his power and influence to further his own interests and the interests of his organisation. So, you know, he's he's never been afraid to engage with the politicians, particularly whoever happens to be in power at the time, to try try to get the the outcome he wants for for his worldview, but also the outcome for his world so over the years you know a lot of politicians have really bent over to create the business environment that Rupert Murdoch wants and and and, and often one that that support around the world but I think particularly in the in the UK and, and and in Australia so I I must admit on the one hand you know I'm he's a fascinating character I, I've don't think there's anybody in media who's ever had so much stuff written about them as Rupert Murdoch I've you know I've got a couple of rows on a bookshelf now of books about Rupert Murdoch so he's a fascinating character to me um and I think the more you think about it is you have to admire him as a force of nature but also feel a little bit more contempt towards the politicians who bend so easily to to his will and you know, are so kind of self-interested, you know, and I I, I think I point to that in Australia as well. You know, it, 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 there's plenty of evidence that we're talking most recently, obviously, about the coalition because they've been in government in recent years. The lengths they are willing to go to keep Rupert Murdoch and other media proprietors happy is really quite depressing what it what it says about our politicians. So he and Harold, you know, famously fell out. So after, you know, 15 years being the most successful editor in the world in, in many people's opinion it, he only lasted a year and they you know it all it was all bust up but one of my favorite quotes isn't actually from that book but is later on he was asked about murder i'm not sure if you heard this quote he was asked about murder it's harold Evans, who you know wouldn't be on his christmas card list and and he's such a sort of a gracious elegant intellectual uh, man and he said when i come across him socially I find I am without any residual hostility. I have to remind myself that Lucifer is the most arresting character in Milton's Paradise Lost. <laughs> so a lovely, elegant way of calling him the devil. <laughs> but, but it makes me want to ask, in, in your experience, in your career, because uh, an amazing thing that, that you did setting up, but I mean, now it's difficult to understand. But in 2008, I was running an agency, and you set it up and I mean, from nowhere. And, and you, you were a visionary and you made it work. You would have to 
uh, you, you know, I don't know, run stories that people wouldn't like, or, or I'm sure not everyone thought you were amazing. There'd be lots of people who, who couldn't stand the sight of you because you said something horrible about their agency or something. And I was ha- say you're being polite, Nigel. You're in that world at the time, so you would know that to be true, not just <laughs> hypothetically. <laughs> and and how did you do? You sort of deal with that. Are, are you a sort of a Harold uh, Evans? You know, you bump into them in the pub and it's hello, or is it daggers at dawn, or, or does it not bother you or what? Ah, uh, look, there are a number of different aspects to that question one of which is hey look by by nature i'm more of an introvert and face-to-face fairly anti-confrontation i suppose so even when we were writing bad news about people news they didn't want to come out i was never looking forward to the reaction or indifferent to the reaction now one of the things (laughs) about me is um i have a fairly good dose of prosopagnosia facial blindness ah. which, which kind of means that um i kind of if there's a scale of one to ten i'm about an eight or something which means that after i've met people quite a few times i do start to recognize them i'm, I'm a lot slower than most but it would often mean at industry events until someone was kind of a bit chilly with me i wouldn't necessarily even uh, even realize they were somebody i defended terribly so that that helped insulate me a little bit but i i think the main thing which sort of i guess gave me and you know our editorial team as we grew sort of a a little bit of steel about things was i always saw it as our job and we used to you know this became a bit of a mantra whenever anyone started we would talk them through this you know when somebody joined us that wasn't just the editorial team it was the sales team or anybody else was our job is to write for our audience, you know, it's to be representative of individuals working in the communications industry. So so that meant you're not, when you're writing a news story, you're not writing it for the contact who's just given you the story. You're not writing it to impress rival journalists somewhere else. You're certainly not writing it for advertisers. And you're also not writing it for those in power in the, you know, in the media establishment that meant that sometimes you would write stories that others wouldn't. You try not to, but you get things wrong sometimes. But your job is to tell it like it is or to do your very best to do so, even if it's going to annoy somebody. Often where we would bump up against our way of doing things versus other publications' way of doing things was that sort of question of, oh, yeah, but is it good for the industry? It's a lot easier to sort of sum it up now because you had to kind of live with it and evolve it at the time but the answer eventually came look you know we're in favor of better industry for everyone and that means calling out the problems whereas at the time you know it'd be very easy to be portrayed as being you know a troublemaker or all of those things i could always live with it and defend it because it was it it was a view honestly held not a view that was controversial for the sake of being controversial it would pass the harold evans test <laughs> well, um, I, hopefully, I guess the thing. Yeah, look, and I, I think the thing is, we can all be terribly pompous about our, our world of media and marketing as well. So I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable even being, you know, sort of talking about Harold Evans in the same sentence as writing about the media and marketing industry in Australia. It's uh, the consequences are probably a lot, lot, lot less risky for one thing when you uh, when you offend in that world. Now here at Five of My Life, we we aren't one of those podcasts, lovely though they are, where it's you know five tips to do whatever but we do like uh, having content where people learn so so it's under the radar every now and then they'll be entertained by your stories but also they might learn something just under the radar and one of those things is going to be you are going to repeat that word about 
facial recognition because I missed it. it what is that word that you are an 8 out of 10? Say it again. Prosopagnosia. So um, if, if ever you want to read about it, um, Oliver Sacks uh, wrote um, a, a book called The the Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Yes, hat. yes. What, 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 a, what a glamorous condition that you have. And, and presumably it's not, it's not uh, you, you don't pass it on to kids or whatever. You, you're just born with it or do you develop it? Or... Do you know what? I, I've never fully known the answer, to be honest. And by the way, this is entirely undiagnosed by medical people. It's just something I've sort of Dr. Google, you're making it up, life. Burroughs. <laughs> yeah, well, almost. Yeah, look, it's, it's definitely something I've recognised in my life. And it's actually a bit of a mystery for me because where I, you know, have sort of, talked a bit to medical professionals is um i think it possibly developed early in my adult life i'm not sure i had it from from birth my colleagues all knew about it so they would know that if we're in a group and someone came over and started talking i didn't introduce them that was their cue to introduce themselves and give me the cue to find out the person's name as well because i i was never very again being brought up as a polite english person I was never very good at just having that conversation that said, I'm terribly sorry, I don't mem- remember your face, because by the time you've offended someone who knows you quite well, potentially, and by the way, I've, I've introduced myself to people I've had lunch with the previous day and that sort of thing in the past. But but the, the problem is it, it derails the conversation for the next 10 minutes if you explain, you know, why, in fact, you you know, you've just done this uh, terribly offensive thing of not remembering someone. So, so yeah. So, so you, you, you are an opposite kennedy so so there are those people in the world who remember everybody they've ever met on the campaign trail and say oh hello marjorie how's your two daughters they're twins aren't they the absolute opposite i mean people talk about sir martin sorrell who was the founder of wpp and now runs s4 so one of the great business people of the world and how yeah he he would you know, take a question from a member of staff in the audience and then a couple of years later, remember their name. So there are some people who have that absolute talent um, and I sadly am not one of them. So we're moving now to the 70s for your third choice on Five of My Life, the song choice that we add to the Spotify playlist, the Five of My Life uh, song choices. Uh, And you have chosen Growing Up by Bruce Springsteen. I guess of all of the musical artists I keep coming back to, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Um, so my biggest problem was in choosing a song. Um, in truth, if I could only hear the E Street Band perform one song live, it would always be Born to Run. But I also assumed that you've had enough guests now that somebody else would have already chosen that one. I think the thing about growing up is obviously it was very early in uh, in his career. And of course, you know, famously both a performer and a writer, and I think what I really like about hearing it now is the you've got the idealism of the lyrics when it was written. And when you see him perform that song with the band, you've got a lifetime of experience to go with it now. So, you know, it's one of those songs that's really evolved over time. One of the memories for me, I suppose, during the pandemic was not that long before the pandemic. Spring scene had been in a 
residency in um, in New York, Springsteen on Broadway, and tickets were almost impossible to get. But I, you know, managed to call in some favors, and but they ended up being really good tickets. So you know, making the journey from Australia to to New York to sit in a theatre and be three rows back um, as Springsteen does this very intimate performance which is the story of his life you know the moments where he steps away from the microphone and just sings to the audience you know just with his own natural voice which is an incredible experience anyway um but i think once the pandemic came and there was no live music there was you know no no everything kind of changed looking back at that and i was just so sort of happy and grateful that i'd taken the chance to to do it while i could but yeah there was that sort of moment where that song appeared pretty early in the set and uh yeah i must admit a little tear came to my eye you know it's so it's so interesting you say that because uh, did you travel specially for the concert yeah that's right yeah look and i must admit i'm i'm obsessive enough that um on a previous occasion i i flew to dallas to see the east street band as well so um which as you know from australia is kind of a lot of hours in the air now, it makes me want to ask you, because the title of the song is Growing Up, uh, would you mind uh, talking to your childhood a bit? Uh, siblings, parents, uh, where, where, what was your deal? It was a very, and it's not a word I would have even thought to use at the time, but privileged background growing up in that, um, you know, it's a very middle-class background. You know, my my parents are both retired now, but my father was a teacher, my mother was a librarian, um, one younger brother. So um, I suppose looking back now, what I think about in terms of starting my career was, you know, leaving leaving school, doing A-levels, um, which is in the UK, the, the step before going to university, and then taking a risk and starting a job in a local newspaper without going to university. And... I think for quite a few years of my career, I kind of look back as, you know, that traditional tale of, you know, pull up by my own bootstraps and all of that sort of thing. But then you look back and you realise actually the thing that gave you the belief to go and take the risk was the fact that you actually knew there somewhere in the background there was a family with a support network that if it went wrong you had somewhere to go or something to fall back on. Um, and I think that's often where I hear these tales of self-made billionaires and, you know, generally they come from families that were families of self-made millionaires. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, I think looking back now, I, I probably had a far more privileged upbringing than, than I necessarily even realised at the time. Both noble jobs that your mum and dad had. That's, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's anything that one should feel any guilt about. I mean, a librarian and a teacher, you know, good on the Burroughs family. Now, we're moving to your fourth choice. Um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing you talk to this because you've chosen Sisters Beach, Tasmania. Mate, describe it. <laughs> well, I've got to try not to sound like an Airbnb ad at this point. But, well, um, I know, and I've you... been on the Airbnb link that you sent me. It's gorgeous, <laughs> mate. Well, I'll leave it to you. When we sold Mumbrella, I was very lucky that there wasn't enough to if not in <laughs> in sydney real estate at least in tasmanian real estate um buy somewhere so we were lucky enough to buy a house on a on a beach in tasmania a little place called sisters beach which is in northwest tasmania so far off the beaten tracks it's a good 40 minute drive to the nearest supermarket were you always planning to go to that part of tasmania or or what's the motivation behind that 
that location? Look, I'd, I'd always liked Tasmania. My partner Rosa happens to have been born in Tasmania, although didn't didn't actually spend much of her her life either as a child or an adult there, but had that sort of slight connection as well, I suppose. Um, to be entirely mercenary, it was also probably the last play, place in Australia that I could afford somewhere on the beach. <laughs> um, for me, again, you know, talking about the sort of pandemic, it was a good place to be when um, when you couldn't be in the office anymore. Space to kind of be, be a, with a national park all around you. And we were then fortunate enough that Tasmania, for the most part, was, was COVID-free, certainly for the first sort of year and a half of the pandemic. So, you know, took some months out to write a book as well, um, which was just, yeah, a great, great remote spot to focus on writing as 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 maybe you're more disciplined than me Nigel but I certainly need to remove the distractions if I'm going to get something <laughs> like that done but yeah so I, I you know feel sort of much more connected with being there you know I, when I was living in Sydney I never know what the phase of the moon was for instance or what the tides were doing yeah. all of those things you just naturally know when you're you know when you're you're, you're sort of seeing them so it's a it's a slightly different way of living and and, and one I, I i used to get a lot more um hours of sleep per day when i'm there as well now we're coming to your uh, fifth and last uh, choice which was uh, usually my favorite and i just adore what you have chosen here uh, you have chosen on five my life as your possession the match day program from the Southampton versus West Ham which the listeners who don't realise are two English football teams uh, the first game of football you ever went to see in 1982 you were 11 years old tell us about that yeah you know I, I still have memories of being taken along by an uncle with I think certainly my brother but I think also two other cousins as well so I look back now and think you know my God, you know, as a he was probably only in his twenties himself, having to drag along, you know, uh, four ten-year-olds to a football match, and of course, in those days, it's standing on the terrace and it's packed. So I'm not sure it would have been much fun for him. Um, but you know, my main rem- memory is being at the the ground for Southampton Football Club was called the Dell then, which was it was tiny um it was incredibly intense and uh intimidating for away for away teams because uh the, the the crowd were right on top of the pitch and i i'm not sure i saw any of the action at all because of course you know you're 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 shorter than all of the adults around you so um it, it was more the atmosphere i think than anything else but um my uncle was a West Ham supporter, as it happens, but for my mum's side of the family, Southampton was the the family team. So, um, you know, over over the years, um, I guess I, I've sort of you know, come and gone in my allegiances. You know, there was a there was probably a time, sort of in my late teens and twenties, where I lost interest a bit, but then gradually sort of reconnected again. So, um, so yes, you know, as I as I'm chatting to you, I'm, I'm currently on a visit to the UK so it's been a bit of a luxury being in the right time zone for watching football on the TV at the very least um but yeah so it became a um part of a kind of I guess lifelong rhythm of certainly in Australia on a Sunday morning looking out for the results that, that came in from the UK overnight and and Matt Letizier was he that he was the 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 main star is that right well I think Matt Letizier for me if you were to sum up the old values of football, then you'd probably point towards him. So he was this incredible mercurial striker 
if anyone just looks him up on YouTube, you know, he, he was, you know, said to have scored the best goal of the Premiership, sort of where he kind of, you know, juggled it three times and then booted it into the back of the, the net in an, in, you know, in an in, in incredible move. But for me, part of the interesting story about him was he could have been so much more famous. You know, he could, I mean, he was quite famous, but he never, never played for England very much. Struggled to get picked because he was such an individualistic player but also because he was a homebody, liked to stay in Southampton, so didn't take the big offers to go anywhere else. Um, and as a result, probably never progressed quite as far as in his career if he'd, if he'd been on the big stage at Manchester United or something. But yeah, an absolutely incredible player. So he's yeah one of the few people I've walked up to and asked for an autograph, you know, when I was coming out from a game, and this was long after he'd retired. In fact, you get the feeling that his... You know his his routine even now is often to be at the Southampton game. So I, I'd literally have been you know dithering a bit in the club shop and came out and most people had gone, but there was Matt Letizia still standing on the steps holding a pen and looking around. So <laughs> it wasn't that hard to ask for an autograph and you know ask to shake his hand as well. But um, a, a footballer, how you would, how you would want them to be, you know, no. No, very, very, as far as I'm aware, no scandal in his life. He had a talent for taking penalty goals. Uh, and in, in his career, he took 48, and 47 of them were successful. And so there's, he only ever missed one penalty. So why he wasn't selected for England, who knows? But the guy, the goalkeeper, I don't know his name, who saved that goal in 1993, has has said publicly it's his proudest <laughs> moment <laughs> of his career. The only person on earth who saved a Matt Letizia penalty. Well, that's a stat I must admit I didn't know. I do remember reading later. Uh, an interview with uh, one of the England managers who didn't pick him because it was always a mystery. And they said they, they'd watched him being about to take a free kick and they noticed he was sort of just tapping one of his feet on the ground or just the tip of his toe on the ground before taking it and decided this showed hesitancy, so he didn't like that. And then later the Tizio was were like, I just used to find that before I took it, I could just get a tiny bit of extra sensitivity if I moved my toe to the front of the boot. So, you know, you, on, on, on such misunderstandings, careers are made and lost, I suppose. <laughs> well, actually, so here we go on, on misunderstandings. We, I've got two more questions for you, mate. And thank you so much for making yourself uh, available to take the Five My Life Challenge. Um, so the first question is, what... Is there about you that you would like people to understand? Hmm. Look, I think I've probably touched on it a little bit before. I think that's the thing where if there is a misunderstanding about my professional persona, I'm a lot kind of brasher and uh, certain in the written word than I think I am outside of my professional environment, which, as I say, I, I you know, I, I, at heart, I'm an introvert, but... But yeah, I think probably the main thing is yeah, I'm a, I'm a lot quieter than you might think. I thank you for taking that question, you know, on the chin and owning it. So uh, you, you've been an absolute legend, mate. The the sixth question um, we always ask all of our guests, and we chase them all up. It doesn't mean that we are successful because some of them die, and some of them are Barack Obama and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who we have asked. Who would you like to hear take the five of my life challenge next, and why? Oh gosh. And the thing was, I sort of knew deep down you're going to ask it. And I kept thinking, I must think of a really good answer. And here we are. We've got to this point <laughs> and I still haven't. Um, 
do you know what? And I might be dropping him in it. Um, the person who I really admire the writing of is uh, Mark Ritson. Right. Um, the marketing professor. You know, he's brilliant on stage. He's a brilliant writer. And I've interviewed him on, on, you know, on stage a couple of times myself. I think there's probably a much more interesting backstory than he necessarily lets on. Right. I, I think Mark's fabulous. He, his writing makes me laugh. I've, I've done a couple of things with him, and, and that's a wonderful uh, answer to my sixth question. Uh, Tim Burroughs, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the five of your life. Nigel, an absolute pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to The Five of My Life, presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Our producer is Mandy Coolen. Theme music is thanks to Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share with a friend. And if there's someone you'd like to hear take the challenge, please message us on the Five of My Life Instagram page. I love hearing from you and appreciate all your suggestions. <laughs>